Well, welcome back to the Conscious Writing Journeys mini interview series. I'm Marilyn Basquin, founder of Writing Women's Lives Academy, where I teach women who are done with silence how to free your voice, claim your truth, and write your memoir stories and your life experiences with confidence, craft, and consciousness. And this interview series is a series of conversations with women who write memoir and personal narrative. Women who have cultivated a conscious writing practice as an integral part of their life. And conscious writing, for those of you who are new to Writing Women's Lives Academy, conscious writing is a method of writing I've developed and refined over the years. And it's a, a method of writing that's designed to help women writers recover their voice and their sense of self from silence and to help them see beneath the surface of their writing to the deeper story that it wants to be told. So in other words, it's a, a method for becoming conscious of what that deeper story truth is. So do you know the story that you're telling? And we practice this method of writing in my group mentoring program, which is called Excavate Your Truth, Free Your Voice, a conscious writing program for women who are done with silence. And I will tell you more about this program at the end of this interview and how you can begin your own conscious writing journey if that is something you would like to pursue. But right now, I am so excited to introduce you to today's guest. Today, I will be talking with Deidre Badejo. Badejo. I'm sorry, Deidre, if I'm messing up your name. No, that's fine. Um, Deidre grew up in a multi-generational household of readers, artists, and storytellers between New York and Baltimore. At 19 years old, she enrolled at Los Angeles City College and later graduated from the University of Southern California in English and African American Literature. She also became a spoken word poet and performed in parks, cultural centers, and schools. Deidre's goal was always to be a writer, um, and then she found herself facing the uncertainties of a writing career, at which point she completed a master's degree and a doctorate in comparative literature and history at UCLA. After completing her doctorate, Deidre returned to the East Coast where she began a professorial and writing career. And she's never been too far from creative writing as evidenced by her many, many, many journals and containers uh, full of unpublished manuscripts. She never let go of the idea of writing full time. Um, so despite the fact that she's always had to fit her writing into uh, a heavy load, a teaching load, that she's still been very prolific um, with her work. She's the author of Ocean Chagasi, The Elegant Deity of Wealth, Power, and Femininity, and another book called Indigo and Brass, Culture, Creativity, and Agency of Women of African Descent, which is a manuscript she's shopping around right now. In addition to the many academic articles on African feminism and the goddess Ocean, Deidre has also published a number of short stories and has performed her poetry in many venues. And she was also a consultant with the PBS documentary Sacred Journeys series. So, wow, Deidre, welcome, welcome, welcome. It is so good to have you here today and to talk with you. 
Thank you, Marilyn. It is great to join you on this journey and to um, share what it means to excavate your own truth. Well, speaking of excavating your own truth, something you are just um, a master at. You're, you're just um, someone who I have witnessed, uh, you know, go after the truth, regardless of what that truth is. And we'll get to all of that. And, uh, but I would love for you to start. I've been, you know, starting these uh, conversations with giving um, our listeners a sense of who you are as a writer and what your journey has been, um, what your journey that, that led you to writing Women's Lives was, um, because all our journeys are so varied, but they also hold so many similarities as women writers, and I would just love for listeners to get a peek into to your writing history, if you wouldn't mind sharing with us. Oh, sure. No, my pleasure. I really always wanted to be a writer from um, actually elementary school. I wrote my first short story for an assignment on blue jeans because I wasn't allowed to wear them. (laughs) 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 I was looking for it. I can't find it. So my mom probably threw it out. But at any rate, (laughs) I used to write um, songs. I was very impressed with the uh, lyricism and imagery and Smokey Robinson's um, music. I half the time didn't understand what he was really talking about, but building castles and skies sounded like a really cool idea. Um, So Mm -hmm. I tried to write songs (laughs) that had that kind of imagery and in high school, I sort of loved mythology and all those kinds of things. So it influenced my sense of writing as something I really wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it wasn't a career when I got to college that I could afford. It mm-hmm. was too, um, you know, fluid, especially at that time. It wasn't quite as organized as it is now. Um, so I went into a... Um, a master's and PhD program, both of which allowed me to write, but also allowed me to pursue a passion for, um, for reading. And um, that then led me to a whole bunch of other things that opened up the world, which was my um, goal to just see how the world um, operates. But as you said in the introduction, I was never very far from uh, from my creative writing. So in addition to writing poetry and performing and going to workshops and all those kinds of good things that I did around LA, I still engaged in uh, informally in creative writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of my uh, poetry uh, submissions too, in fact, ended up in an anthology for Nelson Mandela. Um, oh, wow. So, you know, it was, it was always there. It was never in the shadows. It was always there. It was sort of running parallel um, to my academic writing, but it also fed my academic writing. So that Mm. when I would write, I wanted to write in a way that connected to people. So, you know, people talk about the high tower of of academic writing. I sort Mm. of wanted to be on the ground with everybody else. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Well, that's the connection, right? The connection. The connection. Um, so it, I guess a few years back, I, somewhere after um, 
2010, I really said, okay, look, I've had enough of this. I really want to get back on track full time and uh, get my writing together. Part of it was um, inspired by my students, but also my own children, that they really don't know my own story. Oh. And that I needed to put that down on paper because I noticed that other people were telling my story and I say, no, that's not right. So, oh, you mean other people in your family? Other people in my family, some of mm -hmm. my friends. And I was like, wait a minute, what are they talking about? That never happened. Um, so I just decided that, you know, I needed to write um, my own my own tale, my own narrative. And I needed to write it around the thing that had driven me most, and that was education. Mm -hmm. um, so that's part of what led me to, to look for workshops, um, take a few um, workshops in various and sundry places. And then because I'm still actively engaged in, in uh, teaching, I, I knew I wasn't going to be able to keep doing that. So I looked around and looked around and found your um, course. And I said, ha, huh, writing women's lives. This makes perfect sense for somebody <laughs> <laughs> who participated in a whole project on uh, writing women's lives <laughs> for a project on, uh, on Africa. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I said, yeah, this sounds great. And then the rest is history, as they say, because it's been quite a journey. Mm. And you started, you took Excavate Your Truth. Um, do you remember, was it 2015, 2014, 2015? It may have been late 14, beginning of 15. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I seem to, I always uh, recall like the, the, the season and I want to say that your season, you started in a springish time. Um, but um, wow. Well, I, you know, I appreciate so much how your impetus to really uh, focus your writing energy on your personal story came from that sudden awareness that other people were telling your story and that you wanted to, you know, claim ownership for your own narrative. Um, I think that many women can relate to that. Uh, you know, it's certainly like what my story is type of thing. And one thing that's so, um, that is so intriguing about your, um, one of the many things, uh, Deidre, is that you knew uh, coming in to excavate your truth, you had a, a sense, you already knew you wanted to write a memoir and you had a sense of, a very, very good sense of what that narrative was, that the driving force of that narrative um, was education and your educational journey. And, you know, I'm wondering if you can share with um, listeners what your experience has been since we started this process in, uh, let's say, 2015, um, what your experience has been along the way? Because now, you know, you're writing this memoir, you've, you've, and we'll talk more about this, of course, but you're now, you know, have very well into a, a first draft of this memoir. And I'm wondering what your experience has been, even though you came to this project, like quote unquote, knowing the story you were going to tell, 
and you're telling that story, what has been your experience with, um, well, to use a word that I know uh, you use, any revelations that you've experienced during this process about that story that you hadn't anticipated? Yes, there have been several um, surprises to me uh, mm -hmm. about this process. And particularly for people who are listening, one of the things that um, helped in um, opening up my narrative and opening up myself to understand my narrative were the exercises that we were doing. So one of the exercises um, around um, body image, for example, um, led me back to a, um, two traumas. One had to do with health, health um, and that opened up this whole um, perspective that I had um, about health issues um, growing up. That was one thing. And I was surprised because as I've been an adult, I've I've managed things very well. I've just been surprised at how much of a role um, that played as I was growing up. I have very severe allergies and one semester, um, and I guess maybe the fourth or fifth grade, somewhere around in there, I actually missed the whole month of September um, because the allergies were so bad. And at the time, nobody knew um, what triggered these things, not really. Um, but I've since learned that a lot of it had to do with ragweed and, you know, heavy pollens and that kind of stuff. So what it did, it was, because it's not really that incident, and that's what the class taught me. It wasn't that incident that was um, so emotive for me, but it was what happened around the incident. So where I was and, you know, who my caregivers were and the impact it had on, um, on my schooling, it really had no impact because I always had my homework came home to me and I always did my, my classwork um, at home if I couldn't go, go to school. So it opened up this whole another way of looking at, um, at those kinds of health issues um, at a time where um, no one really understood what they were doing, but they were doing their best. Um, but it also showed me an aspect of myself I didn't understand, and that was that I was determined to get through school, that I was not going to fail anything at all whatsoever. Um, I don't care how many coughing fits I had. Mm -hmm. um, I love to read. I love math was my passion. Uh, and I was going to do that no matter what. That sort of triggered some other things about being at home with my grandparents and my great grandparents and what I learned from them because they were all readers and artists and, you know, people who were making things. Um, my grandmother, for example, taught me how to sew my doll's dresses. So I was making doll dresses you know, sometimes when I couldn't go outside or I couldn't go to school or something. So it, it opened up what education means uh, and how I began to think about my educational environment because it wasn't just formal education. It was the, the education around me, what education means in its um, 
I guess, more global sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, the, that discovering the aspect of yourself that you didn't understand, I think that to, to me, that is one of the, the beauties, the magic of mem- writing memoir, right? When we have those discoveries that open our eyes to who we are, that we didn't even realize these parts of ourselves that we then can, um, you know, excavate and then unpack and bring to the page so that as we're crafting our narrators, um, that that person we are, but are not on the page, right? Um, we can give that a fuller sense to, to our narrators. And I'm wondering if you, um, that discovering the aspect of yourself that opened up what education actually means to you and actually meant to your younger self, how that discovery or, or what role that discovery in itself, I know there have been many, but that discovery in itself has played in how you have uh proceeded with the writing of your memoir does that make sense that the role that you know um discovering that aspect of yourself played on how the 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 larger story itself would unfold yes um i think that one thing that it helped me to realize it helped me connect a series of dots Um, and the series of dots are looking at my experience in, um, in schools, both Catholic and and public schools where, um, silencing is, is really the, the norm, um, for both, um, girls and boys in these schools. Um, but for students of color, it's even more, um, deafening. Mm-hmm. And it sort of showed me um, that this this silencing was not me, um, that this was just not going to work. Um, and it it gave me insight to why I was so fierce about certain things, um, mm-hmm. about attempts to to quiet. Um, my um, inquisitiveness, that which was really a big problem in Catholic school, because why is a very important question to me. Um, mm-hmm. Explain, make sense. Um, no, this doesn't make sense. Um, and that, of course, in that environment is very problematic. But it's not just problematic in Catholic school. For students of color, it's also a problem in public schools. Mm-hmm. And I saw myself um, coming up against um, walls that I just felt like shouldn't be there. And I would not accept the walls. I was not gonna accept um, being pushed into a corner. Um, And I think part of that um, came out of those days when I could barely breathe and I was fighting for, for my breath, if you will. Yeah, you're talking literally, right? When literally. The, the attacks, right? Yes, yes. Literally fighting to breathe, fighting for my life. And understanding that getting that education was important to me, not for the sake of education, but for the sake of what I really wanted, which was to learn and experience the world. It has never been about just education and collecting degrees for me. It has always been about what I could do 
um, with it, where I could go with it, how I could experience the world, how I could make things better for my own family, how I could um, help other people with it. That has always been more important to me. And part of that comes from my dad. My dad was a carpenter and I used to say that my degrees are like my father's tools. You know, it helps me build things. Um, and, and so that coming up against that and understanding in the, the moment of um, not being able to breathe or almost not being able to breathe, um, of feeling choked because of the air around me um, and fighting it, just having the will to, to fight it, I didn't realize that's what I was doing but it began to shape everything else that came out of me moving forward. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, I love that education, not just for education's sake, um, but for the ability to be who you are out in the world and serving the world with your gifts. Um, and and I, I'm so struck by that because you're writing a memoir about education, about an educational journey, and yet you know your subject so well that you know that it's it's not necessarily the education itself but there's that deeper story um and i'm you know i'm so um i'd love to hear more about when you say that you know when you say again for students of color that silencing was deafening i love how you put that deafening because that just you know, says it right there. And then you say, you know, what you came to understand through your writing was that the silencing was not me. And that's profound to me, that that moment of discovering that the silencing is not you, so that, you know, can you say some words about how that helped you make sense of your experience as um, a woman of color and as a writer and as a uh, the, the, the memoirist you are telling the story, how, how that moment of just realizing that the silencing was not you, I, I just thought it's so empowering. I would love to hear more about it. Yeah, there's a lot more. <laughs> <laughs> there is a lot more. Um, th there are key, there are key um, scenes, and let me just sort of pull a couple of them out. Um, as I mentioned, I grew up in a um, multi-generational um, household. And my grandfather, my grandparents had um, separated at one point, um, but my grandfather was always in the house every weekend. And I was very close to him. Um, but I was also the child who listened intently. Um, and he spoke Geechee. But they would not, they didn't want me to learn how to speak it because they said it would impair my ability to um, speak English properly. I think mainly because of the accent and some of the words and all of that. Um, and his brother, <laughs> his brother told him one day that um, don't let that child hear everything because she don't forget nothing. <laughs> <laughs> So between him and my great-grandmother, who was the exact opposite, who told me everything, um, my grandmother's mother told me everything. 
Um, she spoke in Proverbs, um, she, but she also silenced me because she said there are some things that, and I think she was right about this, that belong in the family, they don't belong outside. So that's one of the things I struggle with when I'm writing is, you know, as I'm getting closer to it, you know, where where is that boundary? Because, um, you know, I don't want to be disrespectful on the one hand, but um, I also believe that that's true. You know, we have just a little bit too much of it's all out in the open um, these days sometimes. Um, so I think that there is some, uh, there's a place, uh, we would call propriety, not necessarily silencing and struggling with that, I think is real important for me. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's part of what this journey has been. How do I, how do I tell this, this narrative with integrity and with understanding propriety? Um, you know, because not everything that happens in all our families need to be either A, written in a book or B, um, explored on television. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that that's part of the journey. But that is different than silencing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Silencing to me meant don't, don't let that child hear everything. Okay, that was silencing to mm -hmm. me. Um, it was the um, nuns telling me that I couldn't ask questions in class and being punished for it. Mm -hmm. um, it was um, getting into um, high school and um, hearing a teacher say, well, you know, you've already finished um, X class ahead of everybody else. So you just have to sit here and wait until they catch up with you. We're not going to put you in an advanced class. So those are ways of silencing. And then, you know, being silenced in, um, in a marriage mm -hmm. um, that, um, that led to um, a, a very good change in my life, but a very traumatic and dangerous one at the same time. So these are all forms of silencing um, as events that I fought. Mm -hmm. And I said, I'm not doing this. Um, uh, just real quick, um, a friend of mine who was also very young when, when she was married was also in an abusive relationship. And when I left, I left. Um, and when I came back to, um, to my neighborhood uh, where she still lived, um, she said to me, I don't know how you got the courage to, rant, to run. And I said to her, I don't know how you had the courage to stay. Mm -hmm. And that was the last time we saw each other. And that has bothered me because um, I don't know what happened to her. Um, but it was a form of silencing around education for me because it was a big brouhaha because I wanted to go to school. <laughs> and there was a pushback and an attempt to silence me and silence actually to destroy that desire in me. So I wasn't, it's just, I wasn't having it. Mm -hmm. mm. 
And, and, you know, just what uh, the experiences that women share with silencing and that, you, you know, you and your friend are, you know, uh, right there give two ends of the spectrum of what it means to be in an abusive relationship and how, you know, there's the staying and there's the going and there, there's the so much in between. Um, you know, Rebecca Stolnett, I don't know if you've had a chance to see her um, her more recent book called The Mother of All Questions. Um, but I'm so, it comes so to mind as you're speaking, Deidre, because she has uh, an essay in that book called, it's a long essay, it's called A Short History of Silence. And she talks about um, how we are taught to be polite uh, and how this politeness can be a form of silencing that's actually dangerous for many women when they're in situations because they're trying to be polite and not offend, you know, those who are endangering them. Um, and it just strikes me that, you know, um, that fine line between propriety and politeness and silencing, how those, it really is figuring out for yourself, right, what your story is and what you are going to tell and deciding for yourself, you know, to tell your own story. And then I think it's, you know, that, that doing that, there's always at the end of finally telling that story, we get to decide what we put out there, right? We get to make that final decision. Um, and I can't help but ask this question, you know, how much would you say your memoir is, like there's an energy in it that is the result of a lifetime of um, of that, that, as you used earlier, the word fierce, your fierce desire not to be silenced, you're fighting back, and that this memoir is now like an eloquent uh, response to that silence. Oh boy, is it ever! <laughs> <laughs> it has opened the floodgates in so many, uh, so many ways right now um, that are surprising to me, quite honestly. Um, and I have struggled with some things, but. I have said, if I don't do this, I'm not being honest with myself. I'm not being honest with, with others. And so I have to do it. And it's that moment has been terrifying for me several days where I've just had to walk away from something and say, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can do this. But the, the, the tiger in my tank comes back and says, no, you can sit down and do this. And I, I'll tell you one of the reasons why I have to do it. I said earlier that, you know, my, neither my children nor a lot of people that I know actually know my full story. They, they think they do. And one of the things that started really, really bothering me was that, you know, people will look at you at a certain point in your life and they make tons of assumptions about how you got there, you know, from you had a silver spoon to, you know, you came from a certain um, demographic in, um, in society, um, yada, 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 and it goes on and on and on. I'm saying, wait a minute, none of that's true, <laughs> you know? So I have to tell my story, you know? I have to tell the story of the family that nurtured me, good, bad, and ugly. I have to tell the story of what makes me me, why I teach the way that I do, why I write the way that I do, why I research the things that I do. 
And most of it has nothing to do with some of the stuff I've heard people say. I just said, no, that's the fierceness. No, I am not going to let you define me. I'm going to define myself. And this is the opportunity to do that. And that's the fierceness that, that powers me as, as I'm writing this memoir. Mm. Um, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll stop there. Uh, thank you so much. That is so um, inspiring to me. Like literally as you were talking, um, I get a chill up my spine. If I don't do this, I'm not being honest with myself or with anyone else. And, um, you know, I have to tell this story. So, well, given that, this would be the perfect time for you to read from your memoir, if you would. Um, we would love to, to hear a bit of what you're working on and a bit of what you've been talking about. And oh. I was so, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Oh, okay. I was just so intrigued to, um, before our, we got, before we jumped on the, the call here, the, con, the interview, you mentioned that um, it's a piece of the memoir that I haven't seen yet, but that it came from one of the exercises from Excavate Your Truth was the, the, initial, um, uh, the initial juice to this piece. And so I just absolutely love that an exercise from that course is, you know, becoming a scene in your memoir. So would you read it for us? <laughs> Okay. Um, the, the title, well, I, I won't do it. I won't deal with the title because it might change. Anyway, um, Nana cared for us even more since she was home. Between the fifth and seventh grades, asthma all, often kept me there with her. In the fifth grade, Sister Loyola noticed that my absences rarely affected my grades or in-class performance. Spelling, reading, comprehension, and math were my favorite subjects, so she began pairing me with other classmates who had difficulty with theirs. One of the girls who walked back and forth to school in our group was also in my fifth grade class. We became so close that we started telling everyone we were cousins. She was an only child who lived with her mom, a very kind and gentle woman who worked hard to care for her daughter Francine and herself. Mrs. Flores seemed closer to Mama Rose's age, my grandmother, than my mother's age. When I was sick, she'd send Flor uh, Francine with some soup or oranges to help me recover. So Sister Loyola made Francine my first student. We were both delighted. Sitting in a vacant classroom across from our own, we worked on her pronunciation and sounds her comprehension skills, spelling techniques, and times tables. Although neither of us realized it, I was learning to teach, and she was learning to survive exams and scolding from her mom and the nuns. Francine was my second student. My brother was my first. Sister Loyola was kinder than most, more genteel perhaps, but she was also determined that her pupils perfectly recite the tenets of the one true apostolic faith. We were obedient little mimes who recited our catechism with great pride and in unison, flawlessly. Sometimes when it was my turn to take the names of the absent students to the principal's office, I felt so honored to do so, like I was on a special mission to make Sister Loyola proud. However, 
one day a lesson about heaven, purgatory, and hell unmasked something I hadn't seen since the second grade, a rigidity and intolerance that I didn't have words for then. I ran blindly into it. Quote, only Catholics who are without sin and are baptized in the one true apostolic faith will enter heaven, she said. Those who are baptized and have sinned will go to purgatory to repent their sins before entering heaven. And those who are not Catholic will not enter heaven. The good ones will go to purgatory and the bad ones will go to hell. End quote. That was it? No Catholics in hell? No matter the sin? Good non-Catholics remain in purgatory for eternity? The whole sorting and distributing human beings into batches from which they could never escape was, God, was explained as God's mercy and will? I was stunned and confused. Nana was African Methodist Episcopal. My grandmother, Mama Rose, was Episcopalian. My mom was occasionally Catholic, while granddad was what we call staunch Catholic. I raised my hand to ask, how come my Nana can't go to heaven because she's AME? I don't believe God is like that, I said as politely as possible. In my mind, I wasn't challenging Sister Loyola. I just didn't think God sorted out people like that. I mean, what was the point of being God if the decision was already made to discard most of your own creation, seemed like a waste of God's own good time. It made no sense to me then, nor now. It did, however, earn me the wrath of Sister Loyola, which came with a serious, serious knuckle wrapping and the rest of the day in a smelly coat closet. As I sat there, cross-legged, I wondered if God liked these people. I didn't. The question about God, mercy, and the afterlife became more bewildering by May of that year. So that's the section. Wow. Wow, that's so powerful. Um, thank you, Deidre, for sharing that. I am, uh, wow, the, re the reflection that is in that piece, and it, it just... Uh, Looking so forward to reading your entire memoir, um, ushering it to its completion. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing that. And yeah, what a, um, just what an insight into Catholic school and what year? We're, we're, that was in the 19, um, the, the 60s? 50, 56, 57, 58, yeah. somewhere in there. Yep. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing that with us and also for um, sharing so much of your writing experience and insights into, um, you know, your writing journeys so that we can all learn and grow from where you've been. Um, really appreciate your being here. Thank you. Uh, may, I, may I just say one thing? You may, of course. You are a fantastic guide, and I can't thank you enough for helping me um, along this journey and sort of walking right next to me. I really, really appreciate it. Oh, oh thank you so much, uh, Deidre. And um, the 
it's just been, it's an honor for me. It's been such an honor and a privilege to be with you as you uh, continue to, um, you know, bring this story to the light. And, uh, you know, as you say, you know, tell it, tell your story your way uh, so that you can tell the story of what makes you, you. Um, But thank you for saying that. Um, I mean it. I know you do, and I'm hugging you through the phone, and I'm going to meet you in person. Listeners don't know that we haven't met in person all this time. I know. And um, we, Deidre and I are going to meet in person at the um, Hippocamp Writing Conference very soon. It's coming up, um, not this weekend, but next weekend. Right. So we'll get to hug in person very I soon. I know. I can't wait. <laughs> I'm so excited. <laughs> yeah, we can have like a girls' party, and maybe we'll have a slumber party or something. Oh, yes. <laughs> So, um, so for those of you listening uh, who are ready to begin your own conscious writing journey, or if you're curious about it um, and how you can do that, I invite you to visit excavateyourtruth.com, which is a, a web page on my website that uh, describes Excavate Your Truth for Your Voice in depth so that you can see what that uh, conscious writing program is all about. And if it is, um, you know, something that you want to pursue, would love to have you in the class. The registration is now open. The space is limited for that class. I like to keep a warm, cozy sisterhood so that everyone's voice can be heard and um, we can create a real sense of safety for those deeper stories to to hit the page. And so... um, you know, if it's if you if you're having the sense that this is a journey you'd like to enter uh, in a warm sisterhood, come join us. And if you have any questions, you can email me at Marilyn at writingwomenslives.com. You can also find me on my website, writingwomenslives.com. And you can also find me on Facebook. Um, there is a Writing Women's Lives Academy has a Facebook group called the Writing Out Loud Sisterhood. And that is a, um, a closed group that you can join if you want to hang out w- with us there. You would just go to that group on Facebook and click the join button and then I will a- approve your, uh, your request and we'll see you there. So looking so forward to meeting all of you one place or another and Deidre to seeing you in person in uh, uh, 10 days or so. Yay. (laughs) Yeah. So much writing love and joy to everyone. Thank you Deidre so much for spending such a chunk of your, of your morning with us. Um, And we'll, we'll just close for now and uh, wishing everyone a writing love and joy. Absolutely. Thank you, too. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.